You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's the IPCC. Uh, They recently released a report about the physical science of climate change. And here are some of the uh, key takeaways. The first is that changes in the climate are widespread, rapid, and intensifying. They are unprecedented in thousands of years. The second is human activities are indisputably causing climate change, making heat waves, heavy rainfall, and droughts more frequent and severe. The third is there's no going back from some changes in the system. However, some could be slowed and others could be stopped by limiting warming. The fourth is climate change is already affecting every region on the planet in multiple ways. The changes we are experiencing will increase with further warming. And the fifth is that unless there are immediate large-scale greenhouse gas emissions reductions, limiting warming to one and a half degrees Celsius will be beyond reach. So why is that important? Well, as anglers, if you like to fish for cold water species, we're seeing this unfold in real time. Uh, in the American West. There are hoot owl restrictions in place in Montana. There are river and stream closures in Colorado, Oregon. Um, And these are due to drought, warmer stream temperatures, uh, low stream flows, um, also wildfires. All of this is directly related to climate change. So what do we do about it? Well, as businesses, uh, we can immediately begin to measure and reduce our carbon footprint uh, because that's what the the science tells us we have to do. Um, uh, Another report from the IPCC states that we must half global greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and be carbon neutral by 2050. So this can sound a little depressing, and uh, that's why I am excited to I share this interview with you um, with Sherry Stout from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. She is the Arctic Strategic Program Manager and the Senior Research Engineer for NREL. Um, We dive into everything from how NREL got its start with the energy crisis in the 1970s. We cover everything from equitable solar, how the Arctic is warming three times faster than everywhere else and is kind of the canary in the coal mine and and warning of what's to come. Um, We also talk about how there are some cities that are going 100% renewable and some of the challenges they face in achieving that goal. Um, And then we conclude with talking a little fishing, but also a really good message of hope from Sherry. So I hope you enjoy This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to solve the climate crisis by helping your business go carbon neutral and zero waste. Um, What we do, uh, we just celebrated our 44th anniversary. Uh, We were initially founded during the oil crisis. Um, looking at how can we transition to a lower oil intensity um, in terms of our economy. And then that was under what was uh, called CIRI, which was the Solar Energy Research Institute, and then eventually trans, uh, transitioned 
into being the National Renewable Energy Laboratory just because our mission was much more expansive than just solar. Uh, we have uh, three main campuses. Um, we do have offices in Washington, D.C., but our main campuses, we have two in Colorado, one in Golden, Colorado, um, which is a South Table Mountain campus, um, just as you're going up I-70, for those of you who know Denver and the Golden area. Um, <coughs> excuse me. We also have a campus in closer to Boulder, which is our Flatirons campus, um, where we do a lot more of the wind and marine hydrokinetics, oddly enough, for being about 6,500 feet. And then we have a campus in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is our cold climate housing research center. Um, so it sits about 3,000 miles north of our Colorado campuses and is really focused on those Arctic climates. Um, so we, we really look across the spectrum of energy. So um, I'm an engineer um, by, by training. Uh, we have a lot of engineers, a lot of scientists. So we do everything what we call low technology readiness level, which is really basic research on science and what is the emerging science that can point to energy transition all the way up to how do we get these systems on your rooftop? Um, and within that, we have a lot of scientists. We have a lot of engineers. We also have behavioral scientists. We have economists. We have policy experts. Um, because this whole idea of getting an energy transition happening, um, technology is awesome and technology is definitely leading the way, but we have to figure out how to integrate that with humans as well. And so we go from all of those sort of different angles of how do we actually implement uh, energy transition? How do we do that in a culturally and locationally relevant way? So, you know, what will happen in New York City is going to be really different than what, than what happens in Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, and that's different than what happens in Sub-Saharan Africa or in South America. And so we want to make sure that the energy transitions are equitable um, so that all people have access to renewable energy and energy efficiency, um, but it also makes sense in the context. That's super cool. Well, um, so so Sherry, one one of the things that that you mentioned um, that that uh, NREL does is you said that there was like differences in how maybe renewable energy might perform in different locations. Can you? expand just a, a little bit on that? Yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of, of what goes into that performance, right? Um, so some of it has to do with just what the solar resource looks like. So what, you know, what kind of sun do you have um, at any given point? So if you think of, you know, the Navajo Reservation, for example, um, in New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and even Colorado, some of the best solar resource on the world. It's really direct. There's not a lot of cloud cover. Um, the sun is almost always shining. Um, and so that solar is going to perform really, really, really well because that, that sun is so direct. Whereas if you think of places like Seattle, um, this, the solar resource, the sunlight is very diffuse uh, most of the time. You know, it, it, it's cloudy. Um, it's definitely still bright outside. It's not like it's dark outside. So solar still works, but maybe isn't quite as efficient um, as it is in places um, like Arizona. And then where I work up in the Arctic, um, I work in places where the sun doesn't come up for part of the year. So obviously solar has a really, has a really different use there. Um, and so what we really try and do is, you know, people, I hear all the time, I do have to say this, solar works in Alaska, solar works in the Arctic. It just works really well in the summer and not at all in the winter. Um, and so we, what we try and do with those kinds of scenarios is make sure that whatever the solar resource is, we're tying really well to whatever industry it's serving. So, for example, in places like Alaska uh, that have really intense summer industries, such as tourism, or even some of their fishing, it's a great resource for solar because those match really well. Whereas we're not really going to use solar for winter heating um, because there's just not a lot of solar that time of year. And so that's when, when we say we do it differently, we really match what does the energy need and then what's the renewable resource that goes with it. Interesting. And 
Um, another thing that, uh, that, I so thank you for, for clarifying that, um, that that's helpful. And, okay. So Sherry, there was something that you mentioned earlier and you mentioned that NREL was formed because of the, the, the oil crisis. And that was, am I correct? And that was the oil crisis of like the seventies when energy conservation kind of, or energy efficiency and conservation first kind of made it onto the scene, if you will. Correct. Yeah, under President Carter. Yeah, and so that that just so you know, I guess anyone listening who's who's interested, if if you're not aware of that, I mean, that's something that, that I was taught in in my sustainability program is like you know that was one of those moments in history that 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 changed the way that we started looking at energy, um, and because of an oil shortage, the price of oil went skyrocketed. So we started looking for ways to conserve energy. And if I have this correct, President Carter put solar on the roof of the White House yep. uh, as, a, as a result of that, which was pretty cool. And this was in the 70s. Um, so anyway, that, 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 that's super, uh, to me, that, that, that's fascinating. I, I, I love history and sort of how all this kind of kind of came to be. So that's how NREL got its start. And now y'all are, y'all are working to, you, you also mentioned uh, equitable um, renewable energy. And could you uh, just talk a little bit more, more about that as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we think about renewable energy, um, you know, at first sort of glance, you think, oh, this is, this is going to be equitable, right? If there's a solar array, a community, like a, what we call community solar, which is a solar array you can buy into and purchase power from if you don't want to, um, you know, utilize whatever mix that your utility energy mix that your utility would normally have. Um, you know, less than half of those community solar projects in the United States include low-income households. Um, when we look at um, solar adopters, you know, people who are going to put solar on their own roof, uh, about seventy percent of those earn more than one hundred and twenty percent of the area median income for their location. If we look at black majority census tracts, um, they installed you, you know, 60 to 70 percent less uh, solar on their rooftops um, than no majority tracts of the same household income. And so when we start looking at like what does equity look like, and that's just sort of in the lower 48, right? When we, when we look at places like Alaska, where we have over 200 microgrids with communities living off of a grid system. So when I say microgrid, it means it can mean a lot of things on the grid system. It means a grid that can separate intentionally from the main grid and operate as a, basically an electrical island. Um, and so we see a lot of that for like resilience reasons. But in Alaska, those microgrids, they can also be called mini grids. They are permanently disconnected from a larger grid. So what that means is you have like a village of anywhere from 30 to several thousand people living on a grid that stands alone, has no other connection to the grid. And their cost of energy and some of those grids exceeds a dollar a kilowatt hour. So for those of you who are now scrambling to like look at your electricity bill in the lower 48, you're probably paying somewhere between like 11 and 15 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, and so think about that. It can be you know, almost 10 times more than you're paying in the lower 48. And that's primarily because diesel has to be barged in or even flown into those villages. And so when you start looking at equity from that perspective, it's how can we use renewable energy to reduce cost burden so that people can afford to live in their you know, traditional villages, they can afford to do subsistence activities and not have to change their entire lifestyle. Wow, that's, a, that, that, that's, that's, 
That's crazy. I mean, it's 10 times more, but that's a, as a re- direct result of what having to ship materials and things like that, just to even get the solar there or, or any of their, I guess, goods there. Is that, is that kind of the, the reason yeah, for that? In, in any goods at all. Um, and so if you kind of look at the history of Alaska, you said you like history. Um, yep. You know, most Alaska Native villages were not permanently settled until the 1940s, 50s and 60s. Um, and they were largely located in their current locations based on where schools could be located, which meant they were based on locations where barges could get to. Um, and in the 40s, 50s and 60s, most of those places were fine, right? Like you had pack ice in the winter that and when storms go over pack ice, nothing really bad happens. Um, and they were on shorelines that were you know, very permafrost heavy. They were not eroding. Whereas now those same locations um, where you have to barge all of these goods or you have to fly in all of these goods are eroding really rapidly. And so now a lot of these communities, not only are they dealing with high cost of energy, they're also having to relocate inland um, because of that, that barging infrastructure that was put in you know, half a century ago. Wow. Um, so the, the permafrost, you mentioned this might be a, a, a good time to, to talk about, about climate change and, um, why things such as renewable energy are so important. And I think I'll just, I, I mentioned this a lot on the show, just because to me, it's just the, it, it just sort of is very simple and, and, and very clear. The, the intergovernmental panel on climate change. That's the IPCC. Um, according to them and, and their scientists, we have to uh, cut in half global greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. So this decade, we need to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by half and be carbon neutral by 2050. Um, so that's sort of why, in, in case anyone listening, if you're if you're not familiar with climate change, renewable energy, and you're just trying to get educated on it a little bit, that is why renewable energy is so important, right? Because it is a technology that, uh, in the case of solar, takes energy from the sun and doesn't emit fossil fuels. Um, so it's a, a, a cleaner energy solution and is a strategy to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, but Sherry, you mentioned the in Alaska, the permafrost. Can you can you expand a little bit on on that as well for what's yeah, happening? Um, so there was a really great paper in Nature a few years ago that defined about seventy percent of all Arctic infrastructure sits atop degrading permafrost. Um, and so if you if you've never been on permafrost, um, degrading permafrost gets kind of squishy, like a sponge. Um, and if you think about citing things like obviously buildings on that. Um, you can have some major foundation issues um, that you're, you know, going to lose your building. Roads, bridges, um, runways. You know, runways are really, really key in the Arctic. Again, a lot of communities don't have access to a road system, and so that permafrost, you know, as you're degrading permafrost under this major infrastructure, it means that that community is no longer viable to stay there in a long-term sense. And on the coastline, what happens is it's actually it's kind of a you know one-two punch is not only is the permafrost degrading, so the soil is not as compact, it's not, a, it's not as stable, it's not as solid, but now you've also got a change in ice conditions, and those ice conditions mean that now when the fall storms come over, and western Alaska gets hurricane force winds all the time, and really major storms roll through there, 
And now you've got this ice that's more of a slush um, or a pancake ice. And so instead of being like a solid surface, so when the storm rolls over a solid surface, nothing really bad happens. Now you've got these chunks of ice or even just open water. And when that slams into a degrading coastline where you've got, you're losing that permafrost, you can lose 20, 30 feet of, of permafrost or of that shoreline in one single event. Um, and so that's where we start really being concerned about what does infrastructure look like um, because of that degrading permafrost. Wow. That, I mean, 20 to 30 feet just in a storm. I mean, that that is... That, that's shocking to me. I mean, that, that, that is that is a lot of, of, of land that's lost, right? I guess it's just lost to the sea, I guess. It is, yeah. And if you if you look, you know, um, at places like like Newtok or Kivalina um, in Western Alaska, you'll, actually, you'll see pictures of homes that have just fallen off the side um, of, you know, of, of the shelf, basically. And they're they're in the water now. And that those homes were not designed on the edge of the coastline. Uh, they were not built on the edge of the coastline when they were put in place, but because of because of that eroding shoreline, we're seeing you know homes fall into the ocean. A major environmental impact is um, again these communities all have diesel generators for their microgrids, so they all have fuel fuel tank farms, you know big areas of of fuel tanks, and we're seeing fuel tanks also start to be um, you know have increasing risk to, to falling either into rivers or off the coastline because of that erosion. And so now that's a whole different level of environmental risk because of the chemicals involved, right? And you don't want to have that spill into the same area where you're doing subsistence fishing or other subsistence activities. And and this is just just as a point of clarification, the reason that the permafrost is melting is because our our planet's warming, right? I mean, yeah, and the, and the Arctic is warming about three times faster than the rest of the planet. So this is like the front lines of Absolutely. what can happen to the rest of the planet, I guess. It's like it's happening there fastest. I, I didn't realize that three times as fast. That, that's 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 interesting. Um, so it's almost like the the warning signals are there, right? I mean, if, if it's For happening. Sure. You know, even in the last few weeks, um, if you don't track Arctic temperatures, it's sort of a job hazard of mine, I guess. Um, you know, we're seeing unprecedented temperatures in the Arctic. Um, you know, yesterday, Alaska, the northern slope of Alaska set a couple of temperature records in the 80s, which, you know, doesn't sound all that hot sitting in 100 degree Denver today. Um, but that part of Alaska should not typically be in the 80s. Uh, the Russian Arctic um, had temperatures in excess of 100 degrees in terms of soil temperatures just a week or two ago. Um, you know, those are really unprecedented that far north. And so it's it's a warning signal. I don't know if we if the warning signal could be rang any louder, right? This is this is happening so quickly in the Arctic, and that does have implications down in the lower 48 in terms of how that affects our weather, um, and and what that means down here. But it is happening the fastest in the world. And and just out of curiosity, I mean, so so the the Arctic it's 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 happening much faster, much rapid rate. I mean, what what do you are, are there things in Colorado that you see happening that are, are also warning signs? For sure. I mean, our fire season last year was uh, just horrible. Um, you don't want to set the record for the largest fire in your state's history twice in a year. Um, uh, and then yeah. from, like just from a, from a fishing perspective, 
you know, we're seeing right now we have river closures because the water is too low, it's too hot, um, and it, it's not healthy, you know, to try and do catch and release right now um, just because the fish aren't going to survive it. Um, that was just not common even just a few years ago to have this many closures, um, especially I think our first one this year happened in June. Um, really uncommon to have that kind of closure that early in the year where we're just not fishing some of our more popular fisheries because of water temperatures and because of you know lack of water on half the state. If you look at the a flood or a drought map of Colorado right now, you know half the state is in severe drought and the other half is getting above annual rainfall um, and really based on the, the continental divide. Um, and so we're seeing those impacts in the lower 48 as well. They may not be quite as extreme um, as what we're seeing in the Arctic, but if you look at you know, the heat waves that just hit the Pacific Northwest, the, the cold snap that hit uh, Texas and in the South back in February, the heat wave that hit Texas back in June, um, those aren't necessarily caused by climate change, they are exacerbated by climate change. And so it's really hard to tie in any single event, hurricane, heat wave, whatever, directly and say, this is absolutely because of climate change. Um, but in terms of the frequency that they happen, the intensity of those events, that's what's changing climate change. That's more sort of felt in, in, in middle latitudes. Interesting. And, and, and just to sort of bring this all the way, I'm, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, and just to, to sort of get a even, uh, I guess, a bigger scope of what we're dealing with in Charleston, um, I'm not sure what it was in 2020, but I know in 2019, uh, so we're experiencing sea level rise, like, like significant sea level rise. Um, and Charleston flooded a record 89 times in 2019. And wow. what that, what that means is that our, and, and keep in mind, like, I don't know when it was probably 30 years ago, it was like 10 times. And so the, the, there's a there's a buoy out in the Charleston Harbor, and anytime that buoy gets to eight feet, because uh, we have a tidal swing here, and so when that if it is, if it gets to eight feet, it means it'll flood downtown Charleston, and that happened 89 times in 2019. Um, wow. In 2020, I'm not sure what it is, but I mean, so this is it's like you said, this is happening in a in a. It, it, I think it's happening faster than maybe people understand. Um, and you're seeing it firsthand in uh, the Arctic and your work up there. You're seeing it in Colorado. And by the way, because we were talking, you, you mentioned fishing and water temperatures. I, I just want to bring this up. I, I got this graphic from actually Colorado Trout Unlimited and anyone uh, listening who, um, wants to learn a little bit more about that they've they've got more info on their site but i'll just mention that water temperatures 65 or below um trout are happy hungry ready for a fight uh water temperatures 65 to 68 degrees trout are slowing down and are feeling the heat and if water temperatures are over 68 degrees um trout are definitely stressed they're a cold water species um so it's best to just not not fish uh, that that river um, if it's 68 degrees or or higher. And so, um, I, I mean, I see it. You know, I'm I'm a little bit more in tuned, you know, with with what's happening with fly fishing and our and our rivers and climate change, just because the nature of my business. But um, I mean, it's not just in Colorado. It's it's hoot owl restrictions in Montana. It's Colorado. It's Idaho. I mean, it's it's it, it, it's happening everywhere 
in in the West where they're having to close streams because of low flows, warmer stream temperatures, um, and some of that is directly tied to, to climate change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I just, the, that's why I was so excited to, to talk to you, Sherry, and, and, and someone from NREL. And so um, to, to talk about the importance of, of renewable energy and um, I, I wanted to, talk a little bit about so like what are some of the renewable energy projects that that y'all work on or, or can you just share maybe some uh, some of the ways renewable energy is helping to to solve the climate crisis for sure yeah and and i do want to say you know for anybody interested in in resources we have a ton of free resources uh, we have a youtube channel we obviously have a website that's nrel.gov nrel.gov um, and we have a ton of free resources. If you're a teacher, you know, when you try and come up with curriculum for your, for your classroom, we even have that. Um, so, or if, if your listeners happen to work with like state, local, tribal governments, uh, we can even help you. Uh, we have programs to help you go renewable, um, or assess your resilience to climate change. So, and those are free to you. Like I do want to sort of emphasize that piece. Um, so, you know, please check out the website, uh, for stuff like that. But a lot of what we do is we work with different jurisdictions is sort of what I would just said for the implies. Uh, for example, a, a big project that um, is just entering phase two um, of like how you actually implement this is helping LA, so Los Angeles, huge economy, huge uh, greenhouse gas emitter, um, helping them figure out how to go 100% renewable. Um, you know, and obviously that's challenging, right? Like you have a really diverse population. It's a huge city. It brings in energy and water really from as far here as here in Colorado um, and figuring out how to help them go renewable. And through a lot of analysis, a lot of stakeholder engagement, um, obviously some engineering, figuring out how, what does hundred percent renewable look like to them and how can they get there? It's not going to happen by 2030, um, but how can they get there in, you know, 2035, 2030. Um, and so we do a lot of that kind of work is working specifically with communities, working with states um, to figure out how to do that. Um, so that's a lot of my work. We call it deployment. So it's on sort of that later end of, of figuring out how do we take these really awesome technologies and, and deal with climate change. And so on sort of a national scale, even a global scale, we have something called the Global Power Sector Transformation, which is working with grid oper operators around the globe to help figure out how to manage a grid with renewables. So one of the challenges with renewable energy is solar works when the sun is shining, you know, wind works when the wind is blowing. Um, whereas a traditional sort of fossil fuel plant works, you know, when it has fuel, um, with some caveats as we've seen recently in places like Texas, but, um, it's a different way of managing the grid. Um, and so traditionally a grid sort of functions like a, like a hub and spoke, right? Where you've got a centralized generation plant and it sends out power away from that plant to houses, to businesses, to industry, whatever. Uh, whereas renewable grid tends to be more distributed. And so it's more like an interconnected web where you do have some big centralized plants. Some of those are, are still fossil. You definitely have wind, you have solar, um, different types of hydro, even marine hydrokinetics. Um, so like wave energy. Um, and then you've also got things like rooftop solar or small scale wind that might be something you'd see like at a farm or somewhere like that. Plus you've got battery storage. And so that grid is operating really, really differently now than it did even 15 years ago. And so a lot of the challenge of getting to 100% renewable 
is not just the where do you put that much renewable energy, but how do you manage the grid in such a way that the grid remains robust and reliable and the cost of energy doesn't go up. And so those are things that we look at and those are things that we that we solve again through that sort of network of engineers, scientists, policy folks, economists, that sort of thing. It's a really integrated solution. So we do a lot of that at all sorts of scales. Um, but we're also looking at what are the technologies that need to exist 10, 15 years from now that may not be um, you know, market ready today. So in places like Alaska, battery storage, um, you see like solar arrays or you know, like the Tesla power wall that you see people put on their house or other, other similar technologies. Those are good for hours. You, know? um, you can store power for days, maybe. Um, you can't store power for months. And so in places where the sun doesn't come up for months, what does long-term seasonal storage look like? Uh, we also do a ton of energy efficiency work. Um, so, you know, the cheapest, the cheapest electron you're ever going to make is the one you never have to make. And so how do we get buildings climate ready? You know, a lot of buildings are designed based on sort of how they look um, or what materials were cheapest for the contractor to use. They weren't really designed to be energy efficient. And particularly that's true in places like Alaska that use a very sort of lower 48 or historically have used a very sort of lower 48 model, even though the temperatures are really extreme. And so how do you take buildings and make them super efficient so you can reduce things like air conditioner load? You can reduce things like the amount of heating that you need to keep your heat or your house comfortable. Um, what, is wind, what do windows need to look like in terms of where they gain heat and where they don't? Um, there's a lot of work in that in the building space. Um, and then transportation. You know, transportation is a huge aspect of energy. Um, so we look at things like definitely clean vehicles. So electric vehicles, um, hydrogen vehicles. We also look at transit. How do you make your transit more efficient so that your, your emissions are reduced just by how you move people or goods? And um, that doesn't just include you know, land vehicles. We're looking at aviation fuels. We're looking at um, shipping and, and clean and efficient shipping and trying to reduce those carbon loads from all aspects of the energy system. When we talk energy, a lot of people immediately think electricity, right? And electricity is a huge part of energy and emissions, but heating is also a huge part of that. And that's typically done more through either fossil fuels or in some places through you know, burning of wood or biomass. And then that transportation. So we want to look at sort of all of the above of those energy things. And we have research arms and all of those, and then we integrate it into these solutions for places like LA, where you combine all of those different energy um, analyses and, and different ways of, of understanding those, those energy trade-offs and combine that to come up with a renewable 100 plant. So how do you get to 100% renewable? That's awesome. And and so, and I think I, I might have these statistics off, but it's basically, I think this is right and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think like buildings account for like 40% of our, is it yeah. greenhouse gases or, or, or just energy usage? Um, uh, energy usage. I'm not sure about greenhouse gas, but energy yeah. use for sure. So energy usage and then transportation is like, another huge chunk, like 30% or something. Um, so just, you know, to, to put it in context, like, okay, what, so we know that we have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, right? And we know that there are solutions and like solar, um, like energy efficiency for buildings, um, electric vehicles, transportation related solutions like you're talking about. Um, these are all strategies that can help to reduce our footprint um, and then there's what she, what what you were saying, Sherry, is you know like 
cities like Los Angeles, how can they transition to a to be 100% renewable? Um, so, I mean, I know you mentioned some of the challenges, but can like what what are those? What did can you just list what those obstacles are like that that they face and 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 getting there? Sure. Um, one, I mean, just like I said, you know, communities are going to be really diverse, and particularly Los out uh, Los Angeles, you have you know really high income communities, you have really low income communities, and everything in between, and ensuring that the benefits are equitable is a big piece of that. And so, um, you know, how people want to address energy issues are gonna be different. Um, you know, folks who have access to, to more disposable income and are really concerned about, if, you know, when the power grid goes off in California, especially during wildfire season, like what we're seeing right now, you know, they wanna keep their, their houses up and running. So that's where you're gonna see solar, you're gonna see batteries, that sort of thing. And they have the income to do that. Whereas other communities, their priority might be, hey, we're, we can't pay our existing bills, let alone to put solar and battery on our house. So their priorities are going to be more focused on cost reduction and some of those community services, right? And so a lot of what we look at is how do we, how do we balance um, those things, make sure that all of those community priorities are included. Um, other barriers are, you know, and, and I'm just using Los, Allen, uh, Los Angeles just because this was a study that was just recently completed. Um, but you know, it's a really spread out city. Transportation in LA is a huge, huge challenge for a lot of reasons. Um, within that, you also have this huge spread out city and a huge load that, that often doesn't get it talked about, but water and wastewater is a, is a big energy load. And so, because it just takes a lot of energy to move water around. And so how do you integrate that water piece into this is, a, is, a, is quite the challenge. Another big piece of this is jobs, right? Um, and that it kind of goes a couple of different directions. One, you're transitioning away from some traditional jobs. And I, you know, I have family employed in oil and gas as well. And, you know, what does that job transition um, to a different sort of fuel economy look like? Less so in oil and gas right now, most definitely in coal. So how do you do that and make sure that people who are part of the existing energy infrastructure workforce aren't just completely left out of the new energy workforce? But also, again, like what I said, you know, the, the new grid is different. It operates differently. Do we have enough people to install that much solar? Uh, do people know how to maintain that much solar or wind or any, you know, any of these other technologies? So the workforce piece is its own barrier. And then ultimately, all these things cost money, uh, right? And, and I've never, ever worked with a government who just says, you know, we don't care what it costs. We have unlimited funds. And so there's going to have to be trade-offs. When can we tackle what issue? because this is how much money we have to tackle the issue. Um, we wanna make sure that it's equitable. We wanna make sure that people are included in the workforce and we still have to run a city and provide all of the other city services in the meantime. Um, and so you run into these, these sort of trade-off points that just takes a lot of stakeholder engagement. It takes a lot of working group meetings. Um, you know, it, it's sort of funny, I'm an, I'm an engineer, but you know, would definitely tell you that a lot of these energy transitions, they're, they're really human centric. And so bringing in the right humans to help make these decisions, talk through these decisions, and what are the impacts to their communities is a big part of this. Um, not saying that's a barrier, it just, it takes a lot of time. Um, and really the barrier of the trade-offs, the cost of, of doing these transitions. Um, and there's some technological barriers. You know, very few places have gone 100% renewable. Um, Kodiak, Alaska is pretty close. They're about 98%, but they have large hydro supporting that. So places where you don't have that big baseload hydro, it's a little bit harder question. 
Interesting. That well, that that is super insightful. Um, and thank you for for providing that. I I was just personally curious about that um, because when we talk about it, it's like, oh, we need to transition to renewable energy, and it just seems like, oh, well, the technology exists, so why is it happening? And these are all the reasons that I guess why, right? You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of factors, cost. Um, being one of them, but also, as you mentioned, you know, I mean, they've got a government still have to govern. And while they're doing that, they have limited budgets and they still have to uh, perform their core function while they're trying to do this and create jobs and do it in an equitable way. Um, so anyway, that that's, that's pretty fascinating to me. Um, so thank you for that. I, I do want to talk a, a, a little fishing with you um, since we're on the sustainable angler and, um, we connected as, as because of fishing and then through that found out that, Hey, we were both, uh, climate nerds. And, um, I told you a little bit about, about what I do and, and, um, and, and that's how the, this conversation started. But, uh, I would be remiss if we did not talk, uh, some fishing while we're, while we're here. So, um, what are you're in Colorado? So obviously you're 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 targeting trout, but um, any favorite species of trout that that you're particularly fond of? I love hiking in to fly fish. So like I love just you know a little bitty two or three weight, um, you know, and, and backpacking into some of our higher mountain streams uh, where you get into the the little brookies that are excited about everything. You know, they're not fish that you're gonna. You know, send huge pictures home, right? You're not holding this massive, this massive brown, um, but they're fun. And, and just to go up into our high mountains and just enjoy those waters, that's probably, probably my favorite thing to do. We also have some grayling in some of our, um, some of our waterways here and grayling are just some of the prettiest fish on the planet in my, in my opinion. Yep. Um, so I definitely enjoy some grayling, grayling fishing further north in the state. Um, and so you, I assume with your work in Alaska, you spend uh, some time up there. Are you able to squeeze in some, some fishing while you're, while you're oh, working? Oh, there's definitely some fishing. Uh, in fact, I'll be up in Alaska here in a couple of weeks, uh, for a few weeks. And um, I work during the week, but the evenings and weekends are definitely full of some fishing. Um, you know, obviously salmon, Alaska is well known for that, but Dolly Vardens are just a ton of fun. Um, and so there's just, yeah, there's several rods that are going to Alaska. They're a little bigger than what I use here in Colorado. Um, but the state has just an incredible fishing, you know, interior, definitely down on the Kenai. Um, lots of good fishing in Alaska. That's super cool. Um, and you, uh, so we, we, we were talking beforehand and, um, I was very jealous because it sounds like you're going to get, do some camping and some fishing this weekend. Um, and that sounds heavenly as it is super hot here in Charleston. So camping in the mountains, uh, with, a to do some fly fishing for trout sounds amazing. Um, what are, what, what, what's hatching this time of year? What do you plan on throwing at, at, at the fish this weekend? Yeah, you know, I probably could um, catch more if I went with sort of a hopper dropper rig, but this time of year, I love topwater action, and it is hopper season, yep. and I am thoroughly enjoying hopper season, um, so I'll be targeting mostly browns, um, also some cut bows in, in the stream I'll be fishing, 
and uh, probably going entirely the hopper route this weekend just to have some fun, some fun action on the top water. That's, that sounds amazing. I, uh, yeah, I, I miss hopper fishing. I, I lived in Wyoming for a few years and um, summer foam hoppers. I mean, those cutthroat can't resist them. Um, and they get the occasional brown as well up there. But the, that that is uh, such a cool eat. And they're so aggressive because they're like, oh, man. I mean, that's like a Big Mac, you know, I mean, it is it is. They're, that is going to fill their belly, so they 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 uh, they really go after them, uh, which is super fun. Yeah, we've got some great streams here in South Park, and I'm not going to quite give away my my favorite fishing spot, um, <laughs> but just you know, grass covered banks, and especially if you kind of hit the bank first and then drop it, just the, the take on those is just ridiculous. It's super aggressive, um, lots of enthusiasm by the fish, and it's just a great time. That's that's great. Um, well, Sherry, if there was a, we've, we've talked about a lot today, right? And we talked about, you know, energy efficiency, renewable energy. These are climate solutions. We know that climate change is impacting our fish. We're, we're, we're seeing that everywhere. Um, I've, I've found it fascinating about the Arctic. I, I really didn't know that it was happening that much faster there. Um but we're, we're we're starting to see the the impacts of of climate change um, everywhere. Um, but you know, particularly with warmer stream temperatures out west, hoot owl restrictions, um, river closures, uh, you know, just the the, the whole thing. So um, that is kind of terrifying and, and 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 gives me a little bit of anxiety when I when I think about it and. Um, I was wondering if you would be willing to share sort of a, a, a message of hope or um, something along those lines that that, the, that our listeners can can take away with them um, as a, when it comes to trying to, to solve the climate crisis. Yeah, and I think it, it's really easy to just sort of get into that anxiety, right, and and and, um, and really worry about the future. That particularly, you know, working in this field, um, it's really easy to do that. At the same time, we have technologies um, that can address a lot of these issues and address them from two perspectives, the, the renewable energy side and the emissions reduction side, even through energy efficiency, through transportation, um, that help. That are gonna help bring down those carbon emission numbers. Um, at the same time, we also have the technologies and are developing new technologies by the day that, that can withstand some of these, um, these changing conditions. And so, you know, it, it, I think it's gonna be a both and, um, I think we're going to need both the carbon reduction as well as the sort of climate adaptation in how we build houses and how we build buildings um, and how we design roads. Um, but we have those. And what's awesome is globally, we're just seeing this huge ramp up in how people are adopting those technologies. You know, we're working with a fisherman association in Alaska that's told us we want to take our entire fishing fleet green. Help us do that. No way. Um, so we're, we're just seeing this amazing, amazing momentum growing right now of places that you wouldn't normally, you know, see that kind of momentum. Um, and, and I think that's what's been really encouraging for me over the past few years is just to see sort of this shift from we're going to ignore it or we're going to put it off. We're going to put it off to no, like we have to do it. We have to do it right now. So, so that, thank you. That that's awesome. Um, I, but I have to ask now about this this fishing fleet. Um, 
like electric engines, I'm guessing, or what? what if, probably how? not, um, just because of where they're going to be. We're probably looking more at um, hydrogen. So, um, you know, or some other type of green fuel. Um, and so um, if you, you know, and I can send you the press release if you want to send it out to folks, but um, they're part of a, a consortia of communities and, and organizations um, that are looking at energy transition partnerships. Um, so it's the Alaska Longline Fishing Association. Um, check out their website. Um, and they're looking at how do we, how do we do this and how do we um, not be reliant on diesel fuel and other fossil fuel? And how do we do this um, in a way that actually makes the cost go down? Um, and so that we can you know, use that cost to, to bring in more fishermen into the fleet. Um, probably gonna be some type of renewable fuel. Um, probably not electric, just cause electric based on the size of, of um, the boats that they use is, is maybe not the best option right now. Um, but we're, gonna, we're figuring out how to get there. Um, and just that commitment from a fishing association you know, makes my heart smile. As someone who loves loves fishing, um, loves the fleets up in Alaska. Wow, that's super cool. Um, well, Sherry, this is this has been awesome. Um, I I learned a lot, which is why I enjoy doing this the, these interviews. Um, so thank you for for your time. I appreciate your um, support um, and, and and reaching out when um, we launched the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance. Um, you had, had reached out and then you further demonstrated your support by um, voting with your dollars and, and buying Cerebella uh, fly fishing rods um, because they're they're committed to going carbon neutral. Um, so just really enjoyed it. And, and uh, this was a lot of fun. And um, I do want to make sure I know we mentioned it earlier, but where can folks access uh NREL's site and free resources and, and where can they learn more about what y'all are doing? Yeah, so the website is um, NREL, so just acronym for National Renewable Energy Laboratory.gov. Um, or you can look us up on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, we're on all of those. Anywhere you look at National Renewable Energy Laboratory, we're there. Um, and we have a ton of free resources for folks. Again, like I said, if you're a U.S. based jurisdiction, we can probably even help you out with some of your renewable energy and renewable um, so let us know how we can be useful. Awesome. Thanks for listening and special thanks to Sherry Stout for joining me today on the podcast. Um, the Sustainable Angler is available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So please leave a rating and review, like, follow, share, uh, so we can spread the word and, and protect what we love. Um, also, we've got a brand new website, uh, still somewhat tinkering with, but the sustainableangler.com. Uh, so go check that out if you have some time. Thanks and have a good one.